Back again for another update on the Borden murder case. He run a guest at the past 1892. But before we get to that, I would like to read an email to you that I received from a listener the other day. I have her permission, by the way, to read this. Her name is Sally, and I think you might find this humorous. It definitely made me laugh. Here it goes. I just gave birth a couple weeks ago to a baby who loved the aghast theme music. She would start bouncing around my belly every time it started playing. I stored up a few episodes for while I was in labor, hoping that all the dancing would get her going and pop my water. (laughs) It didn't go as planned. She was very active, so much so that after six months of being head down, after three aghast episodes in a row, she flipped over breach and I ended up having a C-section. No harm done, though, and I can't wait for a new episode to come out so I can see her reaction to the music in person. Sally's so glad everything turned out well. Thank you for sharing that. There is a name to the Aghast at the Past theme song, by the way. It's a real tune called The Bowery from the musical A Trip to Chinatown. Melody by Percy Gaunt and lyrics by Charles H. Hoyt. The song is all about this rube who keeps venturing into the Bowery, which from my understanding was New York's body entertainment district in the 1890s. Dance halls, saloons, low-brow theaters, gambling joints. You get the idea. So this rube, this sucker, verse after verse, gets himself into scrapes in the Bowery, and he swears in the chorus that he won't repeat his mistake, which of course he does. Here's an example of the lyrics, and please excuse my voice, I don't have necessarily the range to do this justice, but I will give it a shot. Oh, the night that I struck New York, I went out for a quiet walk. Folks who are on to the city say, better by far that I took Broadway. But I was out to enjoy the sights. There was the Bowery ablaze with lights. I had one of the devil's own nights. I'll never go there anymore. The Bowery, the Bowery. They say such things and they do strange things on the Bowery, the Bowery. I'll never go there anymore. The Bowery, the Bowery. They say such things and they do strange things on the Bowery, the Bowery. I'll never go there anymore. So before I get to the latest on the Borden murder case, and I'll be reading an article about the story from the Fall River Daily Herald. First, I have a far lighter story, one that should interest any fan of practical jokes (laughs) who might be listening now. Yes, practical jokes existed in 1892, including this one you're about to hear, I guess that's remained popular for decades. Uh, This is from the Saturday, August 6th edition. Page one. Latest form of the squirt joke. 
probably the most disagreeable of all small practical jokes of a popular nature, is that type which involves the squirting of water or any other fluid into the victim's face from a small aperture in the joker's scarf pin or stud or buttonhole bouquet by means of a rubber ball full of the fluid, which ball is pressed by the joker when his victim's face is well within range. This merry practical joke has now appeared in an entirely new guise, and one in which it is apt to have a new lease on life, unless the long-suffering public learns that the proper method of retaliating is to promptly and effectively punch the joker in the eye or kick him soundly from the rear. The latest form of the squirt joke is a miniature camera called the quick-as-a-wink and formed like the large accordion-pleated cameras used in photograph galleries. It is only about three inches square and has a neatly made brass shutter and looks quite chip-shape and complete. Inside is the loaded rubber ball, and through a tiny hole in the brass shutter, which the victim supposes is going to drop and expose a tiny plate, comes the stream of water when the joker squeezes the camera. Victims, at least adult male victims, of this unpleasant device should not forget the punching or kicking process, which is their end of the joke. Okay, on to more serious things. Friday, August 5th, page 1. The Fall River Daily Paper. The headline, Thursday's Affray. No clue as yet to its perpetrator. Further investigation into the circumstances of the Borden murder shrouded with an impenetrable mystery. Nothing that has ever occurred in Fall River or vicinity has created such intense excitement. From the moment this story of the crime was first told, to long after midnight, Second Street was crowded with curious people, anxious to hear some particulars that had not been told before. Theories were advanced, some of them plausible enough but not one could be formed against which some objection could not be offered from the circumstances surrounding the case. Everybody agreed that money was at the bottom of the foul murder, but in what measure and concerning what person could not be conceived? That a bloody deed such as that, perpetrated in broad daylight in a house on one of the busiest streets, could have been so quickly and noiselessly accomplished and the murderer escape from the house without attracting attention is wonderful to a degree. Nobody was seen to enter the house by any of the occupants, although all of them except Mr. Borden were busy about the rooms or in the yard. Could it be that the murderer was concealed inside the dwelling? and had awaited a favorable moment to carry out his nefarious plans. The more the circumstances are considered, the more probable becomes this view of the case. 
people who have carefully examined the ground believe that Mr. Borden was the first victim and that the killing of Mrs. Borden was by no means unpremeditated. Having accomplished the bloody work downstairs, the murderer slipped stealthily into the rooms above in search of the wife and finding her in the northwest chamber, walking across the floor to the dressing case, had crept up behind her without attracting her attention and delivered the fatal blow. The plausibility of this view lies in the fact that the fall of Mrs. Borden, who weighed very nearly 200 pounds, would certainly have jarred the building and awakened her husband, who could only have been sleeping lightly on a lounge, as it was but a few moments after his daughter had seen him quietly reading there that the deed was done. Further investigation confirms the belief that Mrs. Borden was not chased upstairs by the murderer because she was so near the end of the room that she would have been forced to turn and face her pursuer. And the cuts on the head would have been a different nature. Twenty minutes were all the time the murderer had to finish his terrible work, conceal the weapon with which he accomplished the crime, and conceal it in such a way as to leave no traces of blood on the carpet or through the house that would reveal how he escaped. To pass out of the house by the side door within 15 feet of the barn where the daughter was engaged and a like distance from the Buffington house on the north, pass the length of the house and disappear up or down 2nd Street. John Cunningham was going down the street about that time and he saw nobody pass him. And people who lived below saw nobody. Had the man run through the orchard and jumped Dr. Chagnon's fence, escaping to 3rd Street, he would have had to pass the barn door and would have been seen from the living rooms of the Chagnon abode. How the murderer could have done so much in so short a time and cover his tracks so successfully is not the least mysterious feature in the case. Certainly nobody who knew Mr. Borden or his wife can furnish any light upon this matter from the relationship with them in business or social circles. Beyond attributing it to money in the abstract, no theory can be advanced that is borne out by the facts thus far revealed. It was not robbery, because things were not overhauled. Mr. Borden was always a close dealer, and his frugality had been the means of amassing a fortune of a half a million dollars. Nevertheless, he bore himself strictly honest, and if he had expected dollar for dollar and cent for cent, he always offered the same to others. Whether he had at some time or other made an enemy in his dealings, one who would have been led by a desire for revenge, to stain his hands with life blood, has never been suspected by those outside the family and may or may not have been true. The only other motive might be laid at the doors of those who would profit by the death of the couple. 
but people who knew them refused to accept such a view for a single instant. There are no new developments in the case to be gathered from the people in the house. Regarding the servant, Bridget Sullivan, a woman of about 25, it is pretty well established that at the time that Mr. Borden was assaulted, she was in the attic of the house. Her statement to the police is as follows. I was washing windows most all of the morning and passed in and out of the house continually. At the time Miss Lizzie came downstairs, I went to one of the upper rooms to finish the window washing. I remained there until Lizzie's cries attracted my attention. Then I came down and went for Dr. Bowen. I never saw anyone enter or leave the house. Miss Borden made the following statement to Officer Harrington as soon as she was sufficiently composed to talk coherently of the affair. It differs in only one particular from the one she told Dr. Bowen, namely the time in which she was out of the house and in the barn. She said that she was absent 20 minutes, and upon being requested to be particular, insisted that it was not more than 20 minutes or less than that time. She said that her father enjoyed the most perfect confidence and friendship of his workmen across the river, and that she was in a position to know this, unless something unusual had happened within a few days. She told the story of the angry tenant, saying that the man came to her father twice about the matter, and that he persistently refused to let the store, which he wanted for the purpose desired. The only vacant property of Mr. Borden was the room recently vacated by Baker Gatsby, and it is thought that this is the place the man wanted to use. Mr. Borden told the man at the first visit to call again, and he would let him know about the rental. It is supposed to be an out-of-town man in that he called and found that Jonathan Clegg had occupied the store. It is also thought that the tenant wanted to use the place as a rum shop. This Mr. Borden would not allow. It may be added that the police attach little importance in this latter matter. Visiting at the house on the day of the murder was John W. Morse, a brother of Mr. Borden's first wife. He is fully six feet in height, with gray beard and hair. He was not averse to talking and said in response to questions, My sister, Sarah A. Morse, married Andrew Borden in the city of Fall River when both were, as I remember, in their 22nd year. That was 47 years ago. At that time, Mr. Borden was in reduced circumstances and was just beginning to enter business. They lived for years on Ferry Street. They had three children, one of whom died when he was but three or four years old. The others, both girls, grew to womanhood and are now living. They are Emma L., aged 37, and Lizzie A., aged 32. Mr. Borden first went into the furniture business on Answan Street, where he remained for 30 years or more. 
My sister died 28 years ago. At that time, Mr. Borden was worth fully $150,000, which amount he had invested largely in mill stocks, which were highly paying securities. He told me on one occasion that he had $78,000 in mill stocks alone. He afterwards invested heavily in a horse car line. But now I am ahead of my story. About 20 years ago, I went out west and settled at Hastings Mill, Iowa. On the 14th of April, two years ago, I returned home. And since last February, I have been staying with a butcher by the name of Davis in the little town of South Dartmouth, which is near New Bedford. Yes, I am a bachelor. I have a sister living in the city. She married Joseph Morse, a second cousin. I also have one brother whose name is William, who lives in Excelsior, Minnesota. He is 65 years of age. Wednesday, I came here from New Bedford early in the afternoon. I left that city on the 1235 train which arrived here about 1.30 o'clock. I walked from the station up to the house and rang the front doorbell. Mrs. Borden opened it. She welcomed me and I went in. Andrew was then reclining on the sofa in about the position he was found, murdered. He looked up and laughed, saying, Hello, John. Is that you? Have you been to dinner? I replied in the negative. Mrs. Borden interrupted Mr. Borden, saying, Sit right down. We are just through and everything is hot on the stove. It won't cost a mite of trouble. They sat by my side through dinner, and then I told them I was going over to Kirby's stable and get a team to drive over to Luther's. I invited Andrew to go, but he declined, saying he didn't feel well enough. He asked me to bring over some eggs from his farm, which is there located. I returned from the ride about 8.30 o'clock, and we sat up until about 10 o'clock. Then Mr. Borden showed me to my room, his wife having previously retired, and bade me good night. It was about 6 o'clock when I got up and had breakfast about an hour later. Then Andrew and I read the papers and we chatted until about 9 o'clock. I'm not positive as to the exact time, and it may have been only 8.45 o'clock. While at the table, I asked Andrew why he did not buy Gould's yacht for $200,000, at which price it was advertised, and he laughed, saying what little good it would do him if he really did have it. We also talked about business, I had come to Fall River for one reason, to buy a pair of oxen for Butcher Davis, with whom I lived. He had wanted them, and I had agreed to take them on a certain day, but had not done so. Andrew told me when I was ready to go after them to write him at the farm, which would save him bothering in the matter. When I left the house, I started for the post office, and stopping in, got a postcard, and wrote to William Vinium. I dropped it in the office and then went out the north door of the building to Bedford Street and thence on to 3rd Street, to Pleasant, to Waybosset Street. I stopped there at the house of my cousin, Daniel Emery, number four. I went there to see my nephew and niece, the former of whom I found away, 
Then I remained there until 11.30 or 11.45. And then I started back to Borton's, as I had been asked there to dinner. I hailed a car going by and rode to 2nd Street, and thence I walked to the house. When I entered the premises, I did not go by the front door. On the contrary, I walked around behind the house and picked up some pears. Then I went in the back door. Bridget then told me that Mr. and Mrs. Borden had been murdered. I opened the sitting room door and found a number of people, including the doctors. I entered, but only glanced once at the body. No, I did not look closely enough to be able to describe it. Then I went upstairs and took a similar, hasty view of the dead woman. Everything is confusion, however, and I recall very little of what took place. Dr. Dolan was called upon after the autopsy, but he had no further facts to disclose. He described the wounds and said that death must have been almost instantaneous in both cases after the first blow. Acting upon the rumor about the poisoned milk, the doctor took samples of it and saved the soft parts of the body for further analysis. He was of the opinion that the wounds were inflicted by a hatchet or a cleaver and by a person who could strike a blow heavy enough to crush in the skull. In the autopsy, Dr. Coughlin, Diedrich, Leary, Gunning, Dutra, Tortolo, Peckham, and Bowen assisted. Mrs. Emma Borden, who had been visiting in Fairhaven, returned home Thursday evening, having been summoned by the news of the crime. The details of the murder had not been told her, and she was overcome by the recital. She is the oldest daughter of Andrew Borden by his first wife. All through the early hours of the evening, the street was crowded with people, none of whom was admitted to the premises until they had disclosed the nature of their business. A watch surrounded the house all night, and officers were on guard inside. No further developments were reported. The family retired soon after 10 o'clock, and all was in darkness. Undertaker Winward had taken charge of the remains at the request of Miss Borden and will prepare them for burial. Today, nothing but the murder was talked about on the streets, and the interest continues to be intense. The announcement that the family had offered a reward of $5,000 for the detection of the murderers was the only new item to be discussed. The theories which were advanced by those who have been closely connected with the case agree in one thing, and that is that the murderer knew his ground and carried out his bloodthirsty plan with a speed and surety that indicated a well-matured plot. How quickly the report that was gathered about the premises five minutes after the deed was discovered that a Portuguese had done it was scattered abroad after the murder, is looked on with suspicion. Detective Seaver and other members of the state police force are assisting the local department in its work, 
and the office of the city marshal is the busiest place in town. New clues are being reported every hour, and officers are busy tracking the stories to earth. Causes for the murder are arising so fast at the present time that it is nearly impossible to investigate them. Hardly any of them are of sufficient weight to put a person under the ban of suspicion, but all are being thoroughly investigated. The latest story is about a former tenant named Ryan. According to the informant, Ryan occupied the upper floor of a house belonging to Mr. Borden and was so obnoxious that he ordered him to move. While notifying the people, he was compelled to seek the lower floor to escape the torrent of abuse that was heaped on him. And when the family moved, the remark was made that they would like to see him dead. There is nothing more than this in the matter. But as all acts or words in connection with Mr. Borden in the past are being looked into, the affair was looked into and found to amount to nothing. Stay tuned, keep subscribed to Aghast at the Past 1892 as we continue our ongoing story into the Borden murder case. Until next time.